Are you interested in a life in ministry? Are you passionate about the church and how it functions? Do you not get enough of listening to pastors on Sundays? Well, you're in the right place. This is Under the Fig Tree, a podcast for people who are interested in church work. I'm Ben. And I'm Micah. We are two pastors who work at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Join us as we dive into the vocation of pastoral ministry, dig into scripture, and occasionally talk about other stuff like our unquestionable love for the Dallas Cowboys. And of course, we'll be talking about Star Wars. We'll talk to guests about doctrine, traditions, and what makes someone a good candidate for the pastoral office besides being called by God. And we may just help you figure out if this pastor or deaconess stuff is for you. Again, this is Under the Fig Tree from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. What's up, what's up, what's up, and welcome back to another episode of Under the Fig Tree. I am Reverend Micah Glenn, your host and director of recruitment here at Concordia Seminary St. Louis. I had to think about my title there for a second. And of course, I'm joined by my co-host, the Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt. How are you doing today, bro? Good. Good to be with you. And yeah, uh, that kind of stuff happens. This is a podcast. <laughs> and so right. Welcome to uh, welcome to having a conversation. You've done that. You've done that bit so many times. Um, I, I, I think for a moment I wanted to be the director of something. Uh, well, uh, actually, I, I'll take that back. I don't want to be the director of something else. I, I just you just sometimes you have a brain fart. Yep. Yep, that, ha- that happens. Well, this is our this is our last episode of our first season, right? Right. It's kind of a big milestone. Like in TV, we would have like this montage of all of our successes and failures, our laugh moments. This this clip, my introduction would be thrown in there somehow on the fly. Uh, but I think we have something better than that that we'll get to in a moment. Yeah. We'd, we'd get our listeners crying and feeling like, oh, there's so much nostalgia. I can't hardly believe that this is our last episode of the season. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to do something rejoice. much more exciting than that, right? Yeah, we should yeah, like well, have a we should like have an important guest on or something for this last episode. What do you think? I, I you know, I'm a fan of that. Uh, first and foremost, because you know, going through our our mostly our, our past failures of, of podcasting wouldn't be all that exciting to me. Uh, but not only that, uh, you know, in, in the line of host of, of who you want to be on your show, I think we got the guy. I agree. We have with us listeners, uh, exciting, uh, the new president of Concordia Seminary St. Louis, Dr. Thomas J. Egger. He was elected as the 11th president of Concordia Seminary just a few months ago, and he was the Gustav and Sophie Butterbach Professor of Exegetical Theology, Chairman of the Department of Exegetical Theology, and Associate Professor of Exegetical Theology before becoming president. He's been on the faculty since 2005. Dr. Egger, we are honored to have you with us. Great to uh, great to have you. Welcome. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, you and your family. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you this afternoon. And uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 an honor to be on your last episode of the season for your pod, your last podcast of the season. I think the real trick is to. Um, it's not only to look backwards and kind of reminisce about the past episodes, but you need to leave the last uh, installment here on a cliffhanger Ooh. so that people are dying for season two to start off. So, you know, maybe we can like leave off in the middle of a sentence or something. You know? <laughs> That's good. That sounds like a great <laughs> and, idea. And that brings us to the secret of the meaning of life, which is clearly, you know, and then just leave them or something like that. We'll we'll figure all that out in editing. Absolutely. <laughs> well, my family. Uh, I'm uh, I'm the father of six children, along with my dear wife Tori, and uh, we've been married for uh, almost 30 years. Our next anniversary will be 30 years. Uh, we're both from Iowa originally, and met in college. And uh, our six kids, we have two who are out of college and two who are 
in college, although one of them barely. Actually, he just graduated this last weekend. So now I guess I have to revise this. It's been so neat and tidy. I always say we have two out of college, two in college, and two still at home. But now we have three out of college, one in college, and two still at home. Uh, uh, my wife, Tori, she um, she has a lot of interests right now. I think she's at home uh, hoeing in the garden. So uh, Dale and Diane Meyer, uh, when Dale was the president of the seminary, they would always have a garden beside house one. And so Tori loves that kind of stuff. So she's out there working on that. Um, Tori was uh, um, out of college. Her training was in psychology and work she worked with people with developmental disabilities. Um, then stayed home with our kids for a number of years. We actually homeschooled our children for a handful of years before we um, started sending them off to school. And when they started into school, then she got involved with their school as a elementary school music teacher and eventually as a fourth grade classroom teacher for five years. And now these last couple of years, we've been homeschooling our two youngest uh, at home again and probably will finishing them up through high school now. So our younger kids, we homeschooled in the young years and now our last couple were homeschooling in the last years, which is interesting. And uh, our oldest son, Andrew, is married and lives in Washington, D.C. He's a journalist out there. His wife's a kindergarten teacher at a Lutheran school. And our daughter, Stacy, our second child, is uh, living here in St. Louis now again after college. And she works as a writer and editor for communications for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And our son, Abram, just graduated from Concordia University, Chicago in uh, theological languages and history. And he was planning to be at seminary this fall and now has got hijacked by a Lutheran school. And he's actually going to be going out to the Washington, D.C. area also where my older son is. And uh, he's going to be a teacher uh, at the Lutheran school out there for a couple of years, but his plan is still to come back to seminary at some point. He'd like to be a pastor. And his fiance, uh, they're getting married this summer, his fiance is interested perhaps in being a deaconess. So that's exciting uh, as well. And um, then our fourth child, Bonnie, our daughter Bonnie, is a junior at Concordia University, Wisconsin, studying nursing. She actually thought when she was going off to college, maybe she would want to be a deaconess and uh, was thinking she would study nursing as a background then for becoming a deaconess and serving in some capacity in the church. But the more she got into nursing, she just uh, began to think, well, maybe uh, maybe I just want to be a nurse. You know, it's a great way for Christians to serve their neighbor. And uh, so she was a uh, um, thinking she would probably just stay with nursing. And now that she's getting further in her program, she's starting to think, oh, maybe I do want to do something with the church uh, long term. So we'll see what she ends up uh, doing. Either one would be great. Her husband, Eric, uh, graduated from Concordia, Wisconsin this last December in uh, computer science and information technology kind of stuff. Uh, he works doing things that I don't fully understand in the business world with information and data analysis, uh, competitive intelligence for businesses or something something interesting like that, but above my pay grade. And, uh, and then we have two daughters still at home, Ellen and Mary, and we'll see what they end up uh, wanting to do in life. Ellen is super artistic. She loves, uh, she loves music, she loves art, uh, um, uh, visual arts stuff. Um, so we'll see, uh, what the future holds for them, but big family. We love having a big family and, um, we love that, uh, that at this point in, in life, all of our children are active in the church and hearing the word of God week after week and that they know their savior and, uh, and are part of, part of Lutheran congregations and kind of knitted into the, the life and the community of Lutheran congregations. That just brings us incredible joy. That's awesome. It yeah. sounds like they're using their varieties of gifts and um, finding unique paths to serve uh, both church and world or neighbor mm -hmm. um, in a, a variety of different ways. So uh, yeah, that's really, really exciting. 
Well, we want to um, we ask a lot of our guests when they when they come on the podcast, um, especially those who are. Well, I think all of our guests uh, thus far have been serving professionally in the church for a number of years. Um, we're interested in kind of especially for our listeners. What was that path like for you? Uh, as you were considering, what should I do with my life someday? So uh, what made you want to be a, a pastor in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, some of my classmates, I remember when I went to seminary, uh, the professors would sometimes say, you know, how many of you come from from church work families or how many of your your dads are pastors or whatever? And a bunch of people would raise their hand and I didn't come from a church work family with there, no pastors that I know of anyway, going, you know, way back in my family. Um, but but my parents were were faithful worshipers and they had us in church every Sunday. Uh, it was a major priority for our family. Um, they never let other things get in the way of the most important thing. Um, and and I know they really valued their own faith. And uh, my dad sang loud in church, <laughs> uh, which makes an impression on on a son. Uh, you know, I knew it was important to him and something that he found um, just glorious and and uh, strong and worthwhile. So um, so I think just the witness of my parents was a big part in my valuing the church and the work that pastors do. Um, my parents always, um, just greatly appreciated and respected the pastors that we had. And we had really good pastors, not many. I, I really only had, um, three pastors growing up my whole life in my home congregation, but, uh, but they were all such, um, caring and committed, um, men and, and they told me about my savior week after week. And so, um, I was kind of a bad kid, I suppose. I mean, not like uh, in and out of juvenile detention centers or anything, probably because I didn't get caught for half the things I did. But uh, uh, but I was kind of always in trouble and sneaking around, getting into things that I shouldn't. And and so I, I lived with a pretty vivid sense that I was a sinner and I didn't I didn't honor and obey my parents and other authorities. And I was selfish and and uh, broke God's commandments in different ways. And I, I smile uh, just thinking of, you know, that a lot of young people and children are like that. But it's not funny in the end. You know, sin is, a, is devastating uh, in human lives. And I knew from early on that I needed a savior. And every Sunday I just so appreciated just that my pastor talked to me about Jesus and that he loved me. And that he came to die for me, gave his life for me, that he had won a kingdom for me, and that he was with me. And that was just very important. But I think in spite of all those things, I don't think I would have thought about being a pastor. Because I think still I just thought pastors were some in some different category than normal people. You know, I, right. I wasn't really sure— it's hard to get back inside my young mind and remember exactly how I thought about things. But I think I just basically thought that, norm, you know, normal people from normal families and normal walks of life don't become pastors. Uh, that's some, you know, separate subculture or something uh, in our in the world. And uh, um, so I think two things were significant in opening up that as a real possibility real possibility to, to me. Um, one is that my older brother, who's eight years older than I am, so we weren't like, you know, super close buds growing up or whatever, because he was quite a bit older than me. Um, but he decided to be a pastor. Um, I can still remember he was in trouble for something. Uh, this was like, I think even oh, I think, it, no, he was in high school at the time. He was maybe a, a senior in high school, I think. And he had gotten himself in some big trouble with my parents. And I remember he had left a note to them apologizing and also telling them in this note that he had decided what he wanted to, to do uh, when he got done with college. Uh, he wanted to be a pastor. 
And so, uh, that's a you know, great a way to apologize. Move. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, no greater way to atone for your sins than to become a pastor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like Martin save Luther's me story, and right? I will save me, St. Anne, and I will <laughs> yeah. become a monk, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I can still remember hearing about, I think I heard it about it from one of my other siblings who told me, hey, Paul, Paul wrote this note to mom and dad. He he's, wants to be a pastor. And I remember thinking, wow. That's that's really kind of amazing. My brother wants to be a pastor. And I think the fact that I'm not sure what all led him, uh, it'd be interesting. I've never really asked him, why did you start thinking about that? But the fact that someone in my family was walking down that path always made it much more of a real possibility to me. So that was one thing. And the other thing was when I was 14, so a few years after that, uh, my pastor, my home pastor, Marlon Remfer, um, just before confirmation, in the weeks leading up to confirmation, he took, there were three of us in my confirmation class, he took each of, each of us out for lunch individually, and in that uh, lunch conversation, one of the things he said to me is, he said, I'm sure you'll think about lots of different things that you could do in life, but I really hope that you'll at least think about being a pastor. And uh, and that just that little conversation that he probably you know had with every boy confirmant in the in the congregation perhaps uh, it was just really uh, meaningful to me and again just opened my eyes or my thoughts to to at least considering that possibility and once I really started to think about that as a possibility. Um, I wasn't really sure that my gift set was particularly the gift set to be a pastor. Um, but the more I thought about that work, I just thought, I can't think of anything more beautiful to do. I can't think of anything more important to do than to point people to the one who holds in his hands every good thing and who can help them with their deepest needs and will will um, will help them and shepherd them eternally. Um, and you know what what better thing can I do in life? And there's lots of really good things to do in life, right? To serve our neighbor. Lots of really good vocations. But once I really started thinking about being a pastor, I did think about a lot of other things. I thought about politics. I thought about journalism. I thought about engineering. My dad is an engineer. I was always kind of math and science uh, inclined, but but I just uh, I couldn't talk myself into anything that was th that seemed more valuable or important or that I really wanted to spend my life doing than than uh, bringing the gospel into people's lives. Yeah, and I've I've heard you speak. Um about this joy that you have in sharing Christ with others, the joy of proclaiming Christ. And it, it just, um, it, it comes out of you and you speak, uh, very naturally about the, the great joy, um, that there is in, in proclaiming Christ to other people. So you went from, uh, kind of discerning this vocation through college and seminary. Um, and, and then you were a a parish pastor in Iowa um, after you graduated seminary. So tell us a little bit about that parish ministry and uh, the the joy of proclaiming the the gospel to to people in their everyday lives. Yeah. Um, well, I was a pastor in Northwest Iowa in rural Storm Lake, Iowa, for five years, and. Um, it was uh, it was a, a beautiful setting. We loved living out in the country, and uh, the people in whose midst we served, um, just great people, a uh, great variety of people. Um, uh, they they uh, one interesting thing about a, a a rural church like that that's a little different than um, than an, an urban congregation or a suburban congregation is their lives have been intertwined in that place for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so the families, they know each other well. They have a lot of history. They have a lot of respect and appreciation for one another. They know one another well, but they also have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of 
well, long-standing, uh, long-standing uh, grudges maybe is too strong of a word. I think that by and large, the congregation I served, they were really forgiving people and they dealt very graciously with one another for the most part. But after a while, you just kind of get, you'd get a sense of, uh, um, it's a hard thing to live with people for a very long time, right? This is why right. there, this is why there aren't a lot of marriages that that last the distance, right? Or yeah. I should say it the other way around. Many marriages don't, because uh, right. it's hard for sinners to live uh, well with one another for a whole long <laughs> span of life. And uh, and in congregations where uh, you know other congregations I've been a part of, I'll come back. Uh, 10 years later or 20 years later, and there's not a lot of familiar faces there. You know, there's just a lot yep. of turnover in many congregations. But the congregation where I served, um, uh, we would bring in, you know, occasional new members who had moved into the community um, or maybe people who had moved away and had moved back to the area, things like that. But um, but especially the people who had been there for a while, they had been there for a while and they'd been there together and their parents had been there together and their grandparents had been there together. And so uh, it was kind of a, a, a unique and different dynamic uh, from the congregation I grew up in, for example, and most that I've been a part of uh, in other places. But they were, it was a great uh, congregation of people and one of the things that struck me most uh, that I'll always remember is just the very first moment we pulled in uh, to the driveway. There were about 30 people gathered there with this giant moving truck and all of our junk <laughs> and all of my hundreds of boxes of books. <laughs> and uh, they just went into the truck and just started hauling everything into the house, putting everything away, just so eager to welcome us and to help and to be helpful and supportive and that was really my experience the entire time there but i always i always held on to that first that first encounter because it was such a testimony to me that they were loving and supporting us not because of who i am or because of who we were they they didn't even know us they were just so grateful to be getting another pastor mm. and they so appreciated having a pastor, you know, again, the person who's going to tell them about their savior every every week, the person who's going to baptize their children and feed them with the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and comfort them in grief and share with them the, the most joyous moments of life. And, uh, you know, it, so it wasn't so much uh, feeling puffed up because I was being treated so well by all these people, but just amazingly humbled uh, that they would treat a stranger in this way mm. just because he's a pastor. And, uh, and I think we should all have that kind of deep appreciation in our hearts for people who have brought the word of God to us. President Egger, uh, last week we were, we were interviewing a, a deaconess, uh, who happens to be my mother-in-law, but, uh, we were, we were talking about diaconal ministry and, and to get to the question of what a deaconess is, we were, we were talking about what a pastor is or who a pastor is and what they do. And, and you, you have that standard boilerplate word in sacrament ministry, preach and teach God's word, properly administer the sacraments. Those are kind of like the, the standard requirements that pastors have to do in ministry. Uh, but you know, I know, uh, Ben knows that uh, pastoral ministry supersedes those boilerplate requirements because of, of who you are to, the congregation and and who you represent. Uh, what were some of the things contextually, and, and and sometimes this is driven heavily by context, depending on where you serve. The extra pastoral things will will come about. What mm -hmm. were some of those things uh, beyond just you know baptizing and teaching uh, that you encountered, and uh, how did they continue to form you into to how did they further your formation into really becoming a pastor? You know this idea that we become a pastor when we're ordained and, you know, we're all said and done after four years. We all know that's, that's silly. It's a lifelong educational process of yeah. becoming a, a model of, of Christ to the church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could talk about that for a, a very long time. You know, all the different um, kind of interesting and just meaningful uh, 
different situations and time spent with people. Um, but in broad terms, I'll, I'll talk in broad terms and then give a couple of specific examples. But in broad terms, I think the thing that was most significant to me in my early years was just listening to people. Um, so I, I, I made a point to um, ask to come around and visit with people in their own homes, you know, everyone in the congregation. And not everyone wants to be visited. That, that was also something that opened my eyes is everybody's different, right? So some people you say, I'd like to come visit you in your home and they just about fall over with joy and appreciation. And when you get there, they have no pastors ever visited me in my home before. This is the greatest thing, you know, and, and other people, they're, they're pretty reserved and, and you know, why do you want to come visit me? And why do you want to visit me in my home? And I'd really, maybe we can meet somewhere else or, uh, so, but for the most part, people are very welcoming uh, and and love to have a pastor come into their life in that more direct and substantial way, right? To walk through the door of their house. Um, and you can think about other parts of, of people's lives too. Like um, I was in a farming community, so um, driving a tractor, pulling a grain cart beside a combine and sharing in in the harvest with some families uh, during harvest season, right? Just being there as a part of a really meaningful uh, slice of their life, right? The harvest season of a farming family um, or or with students at sporting events, you know, sports can be so important uh, in, in the lives of young people, maybe too important sometimes, but uh, but it's important. And to be there and share the share the joys and the, you know, the, what is it? The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. That, that slogan goes from probably before you guys' time. That was like NBC sports or something, but to, to share that with people, um, it, all those things are important, but especially visits in homes. Um, and with that, I'd include nursing homes for older people, uh, but where they live, uh, and just to sit and listen to them and be there for them uh, as an open ear, you really come to know people and it takes the scales off of your eyes, you might say as a pastor. Uh, I always tell students um, at the seminary, I always say when I was first a pastor, I kind of had this sense that, you know, some of the people in, in my congregation, you know, they have some real problems and they're struggling in life. And I, I kind of think of it as life's on top of them. They're not on top of life, you know? And I used to think maybe that's like 15% of the people in the congregation. Cause I thought, you know, I, I know a few of these families, they have some things going on, but for the most part, I thought most of the people in the congregation are pretty strong and put together and they're kind of on top of life, you know? And I used to even preach almost with the assumption that uh, people need to be kind of, kind of brought down to size or they need to have their great need revealed to them, you know, and then I can preach the gospel. And it is true. We always need to hear law and gospel. That's that's all very helpful. But but I really came to realize as a pastor, once I once I took the time to listen to people and they would tell me about a death of a loved one from many years back that they've never gotten over and that they still grieve over constantly or they'd tell me that um, they've struggled with drug addiction for years or with chronic pain or you know just different things that you you never would have seen coming as a pastor if you didn't take the time to just be with people and listen to people and what what I came to learn is that it's not 15% of the people who are on top of life or who are it's not 85 percent of the people who have things put together and are basically living out of strength it's maybe 10 or 15 percent of the people at any given moment mm-hmm. kind of have their life together and are feeling good about who they are and and how their life is going and almost all of us are really struggling most of the time uh that's that's the human condition and if i'm not this week Thank you, Lord, for giving me a, a stable season in my life because I know my day is coming again, right? I know uh, I know there are burdens and sorrows uh, and real struggles that are that are coming my way, if not to me personally, then to someone that I really love right next to me. And uh, um, 
so that that was something that was a real learning experience as a pastor and it also helps you to be a better pastor because you know who you're dealing with <laughs> and you know how the gospel connects with their lives and you can bring christ's christ saving work in all of its different dimensions uh all the th- all the differences that jesus makes for us <laughs> you can you can speak about those things in specific terms that really are um, salve for the wounds that everyone has. And uh, um, so, so yeah, so there was that. And, and, um, and there are just things, you know, you can go into a, you can go into a Midwestern community that you think this is going to be just kind of plain, straightforward, boilerplate, uh, vanilla ministry, you know, uh, but the human condition is the human condition everywhere. And there are, there are real tragedies that strike out of the blue everywhere. And so, you know, I had a phone call one time, one of our college students off at college had had a motorcycle accident. It had basically removed his face, just pushed it sideways. And he was in the hospital having, you know, complete reconstructive surgery for everything above his his uh, shoulders, you know, so cosmetic and then brain uh, brain issues. And the recovery of that was a months long process that that family went through. He, he lives uh, to this day and he's uh, actually he's a it's a miracle. Uh, but to meet a family at the hospital that is faced with something like that. And having no idea what the future is going to bring and then walking through them with the months of still wondering, you know, what's the outcome of this going to be or or getting a phone call that a high school, um, a high school student in your congregation and his girlfriend um, have been expecting a baby and uh, and you, you and you've never heard about this until this point, but they've just found out at the last doctor's visit that the child is no longer alive mm. and and to go into the and and now they'll have that she's so far along that they have to induce labor she has to go through childbirth mm. to give birth to a child that they know they've already lost and to sit with them in the hospital and to not really know what to say because some of those situations are just almost beyond words but just to be there with them and uh, to feel like uh, um, to feel completely inadequate to bring the right word or to know what to do, but to just pray to God that he'll help you to to communicate his love and give you some words to say. And, um, you know, to be there in the hospital, to be invited in to hold this to hold this tiny child and to uh, and to pray with the family. And uh, in that particular case, it was a family that wasn't wasn't very regular in church um but after that for a time uh they were really reconnected with the congregation and uh, and in part it was because the pastor had taken time to spend with them and they'd seen god's love at work even in the most horrible gut-wrenching uh kind of a situation so you know i could tell a lot more of those kind of shocking uh, um you know, hard situations and pastors are called right into the middle of those. You get the phone call and you're right in the middle of them and no one's adequate. Uh, But pastors are given supernatural divine love to to speak into those, you know, a a message of this, that the son of God has come down and shared our flesh, shared our death, gained for us resurrection. we actually have something to say. The only we we're the only people who really have anything meaningful to say in the midst of some of these tragedies is is the church Christians, and uh, so it's a real privilege to be in the middle of those things. Of course, most of ministry is not that weighty <laughs> and difficult, right? Um, you also get invited into met people's joys and, uh, yeah. you know, the celebration of lots of milestone events in a, in a small community like that, that, that is also a great privilege. Well, and 
Tom, your 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 pastoral heart uh, still comes out just as the way you answered that question. Um, your your care for individuals. I long before you became president, uh, I had a, a a loved one pass away, and I remember uh, very well. You sent me a a very thoughtful uh, note, um, not just a, a one liner email, but a, a handwritten note. Um, just joining me in in my grief and uh, assuring me of uh, Christ's promises in his resurrection. And that pastoral heart uh, continues to shine shine through today in, in everything you do. But I think you pair that also with this, um, this sharp academic mind that loves the scriptures, right? So, so you wrote your dissertation on I, I think what what a lot of people would probably consider kind of a difficult passage in the the Bible, and I know that that's one of your interests are the the difficult passages of Scripture. But um, this passage from from Exodus that uh, Yahweh is visiting iniquity of fathers upon sons. It's this uh, tough tough uh, words that come after the first commandment uh, that kind of articulates who who Yahweh is, who our God is. And and you you decided that you wanted to write an entire dissertation on that. Uh, I I also want to say for our listeners that I I know that um Dr. Egger would not say this uh probably, but uh the the reader of his dissertation, uh one of his readers, who is a, a very well known uh scholar in the the greater New Test or uh, Old Testament academic world, Tremper Longman, uh, said that it was one of the best dissertations that he's ever read, and this wasn't his first. Um, so, so um, you you have uh, you join your pastoral heart with this academic mind that loves the scriptures. Tell us a little bit about visiting iniquity of fathers upon sons. What's that all about? Yeah, well, it doesn't sound like a very cheerful thought, does it? And uh, and it's troubling to a lot of people because we think of ourselves as individuals, right? And we think I have a right to be treated as an individual. Don't don't saddle me with uh, my associations with other people. Yeah, and, you know, don't don't blame me for my dad. <laughs> right. Don't blame me for my grandpa. Right? Uh, I'm my I'm my own person, and especially I think as Americans, but. But historically, throughout the history of the church, this has been somewhat of an offensive notion uh, to people, and uh, and the the scriptures have been mocked actually by by um, critics of the church, uh, critics of both Christians and Jews uh, have have mocked that that language and said, see see what kind of a god these people believe in, such an immoral god who punishes this person over here for the sins of this person over here. It just seems uh, on its face to be kind of unfair. Um, but the more I looked at that phrase, my project was to really listen to that phrase as it's expressed in the book of Exodus and in the flow of the story of the book of Exodus. This is one of the great problems in some academic biblical scholarship. For the last 200 years, there's been a tendency to try to reconstruct the history supposedly behind the text of the Old Testament so that we no longer read it as a whole, but we try we dissect it and take every little piece and ask in isolation, where did this little phrase come from in Israel's history or culture or something? And we try to answer that question apart from the text as it stands as a whole. And so my project was to read the book of Exodus and then read it again and then read it again and read it again. And after I had read it a bunch of times in English to read the whole book in Hebrew multiple times and and to try to hear that phrase in connection with the flow of the overall book. And a couple of things stood out. One is that both in Genesis and Exodus, human beings are not portrayed as just individuals. We are part of a lineage. And that lineage is really significant in God's plans. Um, from the Garden of Eden, his plan was he didn't just make a world full of billions of people, right? He made Adam and Eve. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And even after sin and rebellion came into the world, God in his grace still made good on that blessing. You know, it, there were many people born and 
and more and more and more. And they were born through families. And if you read through the book of Genesis, God kind of deals with people in terms of family lines and family groups uh, just consistently. And uh, you get to uh, you get to the book of Exodus and he's made these promises to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's been making the promises for hundreds of years now. And the promise is that he's going to be their God and they're going to be his people, that they're going to live in this promised land under his blessing throughout their generations. And ultimately, that the great promise of the restoration of the world, the great promise of a savior is going to come through their line, through their seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through their offspring and ultimately through Jesus. So they have this great promise, but they're in slavery they're enslaved in Egypt. And so God acts, and everybody knows the story of the Exodus, right? It, that's one of the most familiar stories of the Bible. God acts in these dramatic ways, the 10 plagues that finally breaks the oppressor's power and forces Pharaoh's hand so that he has to let the people go. And he they, they journey out, but Pharaoh then changes his mind and pursues them. And God opens up the sea and they cross on dry land. And then he destroys Pharaoh's army in the sea and he feeds them with manna and water from the rock in the wilderness. All, the, all these great stories. And God is at work bringing this people out, fulfilling his promise. And his plan is, I'm going to bring them up into the land and I'm going to bless them throughout their generations. So that's the gospel story of, of Exodus. And then here comes this threat, though. Don't have any other God right? Don't worship and bow down to other gods because I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of fathers upon sons to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And so the warning here really is, it's couched in language, if you think about it, that turns the blessing on its head. So the blessing, the intended blessing is, I'm going to bless you and your sons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons. I'm making this lasting covenant with you as a people. And so it makes sense that he expresses the warning, don't forsake this blessing, because if you do, if you turn aside to worship other gods and your children follow after you in those same ways, it's going to mean, uh, it's going to mean divine punishment instead of divine blessing as you turn away from me in, in uh, obstinate rebellion. Um, the marvel, though, of the book of Exodus is the people do turn away into idolatry mm. right away. It's one of the first things they do. They right. build a golden calf. And though God uh, takes stern measures to chasten them on the heels of that, ultimately he forgives their sins and he still goes with them to be their God. So this is not a formula, this visiting iniquity of fathers upon sons. It's not some inescapable formula that God is rigidly always going to uh, pour out three or four generations of punishment for every sin that any person ever commits, right? Um, it's a warning, ultimately, worship the one true God, because to depart from him is to bring, instead of blessing, calamity for generations uh, of your family. Right. And I think, uh, I think as Christians, that's a that's a good word for us to hear. It's a good word of warning, but we never want to hear that word of warning without also realizing that God's real plan for us, what he really wants, the reason why he's warning us is because what he wants for us is to live in his love and blessing. And he wants that for our children and grandchildren as well. When I was a, a student at the seminary in Hebrew with uh, Dr. Reed Lessing, we had this mega midterm called the Yom Ivri, the day of Hebrew. Um, and I, I say that mostly because, you know, you're a Hebrew professor at CSO, uh, but we're entering into the Yom Eger, where you have the, the reins of the helm of the president of CSO. Uh, and I, I think I speak on behalf of the fa faculty and staff at CSO that we're excited to have you as our president. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited as a, as a young pastor, but also relatively fresh uh, staff member. Uh, if you could, one thing that we, we've been trying to be better at is, is asking our guests, 
what's the one piece of advice you would have for somebody uh, who desires to enter ministry? But since you're the president uh, of the seminary, I want to add some a caveat to that. So what's what's a piece of advice you would have for somebody who desires to enter into uh, specifically pastoral ministry, maybe generally church work? Uh, but also, what are some real expectations to have uh, entering into seminary education? And then maybe realistic realistic expectations of of what was accomplished there and what you're equipped with going out. If that's too much of a question, uh, answer one part of it. Um, but I only say that because you mentioned some of these, you know, auxiliary tools that we learn out in the parish. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in four years of seminary, we can't learn everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just so that we can set a, a realistic stage of, of what takes place at Concordia Seminary. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, in terms of one piece of advice I would give for students on their way in, um, it's to really, uh, well, first of all, read your Bible. I, uh, I, I cannot say enough how, what it's, it's cliched, right? Um, it's a cliched thing to say, well, read your Bible. But to know the word of God is to be able to speak out of the word of God. And the alternative to that is to just speak from our gut and what Mm. kind of sounds right or seems right. And Christ sheep don't need your gut. (laughs) Christ sheep need, uh, they need the word of life. And, And he has the words of eternal life. His prophets and apostles bear record and testimony to Jesus and his saving ways and his beautiful will for us. And so, um, there's just so much wisdom to be gained whether you're coming to seminary or not, um, feed on the word of God and don't come to seminary with the assumption that your seminary years are really going to, that those are the years where you're really going to um, master the full content of the scriptures or something like that, because uh, we have a, a broad range of things that, and certainly we study the scriptures, but we have a lot of things to accomplish in these years to prepare men to go out and start into the work as pastors. And a lot of the study of scripture is pretty focused, you know, in this little place or this little place. Um, it's deep, but it's focused. Uh, and so a, a really important preparation is come with a good sense of the the swath of the scriptures and uh and if you've only read it once through and uh and the time in life has come to uh to come to seminary come to seminary and build on that but if you have the luxury to to um to have read you know the the scriptures cover to cover three or four times before coming to seminary that's even better um so i would say that which might be cliched but that was it was valuable to me i'm so grateful for the discipline that I had before seminary of spending time in the in the scriptures, um, and then in terms of what to expect here, I would just say, think about your seminary time as the time in your life, uh, kind of like the disciples. And uh, and Doctor Doctor uh, Jim Veltz uh, likes to talk this way about about seminary is it's a time in your life really to set other things aside and spend time with the Lord. And what is that gonna look like? Well, it's spending time with the Lord again to, to learn from the scriptures, to learn from uh, from other Christian theologians who have drawn wisdom from the scriptures in terms of doctrine and a careful consideration of the doctrines that are drawn from the scriptures, including our Lutheran confessions, um, learning about the story of Jesus continuing work in the world in church history, and then learning from other shepherds uh, the skills of ministry. Uh, so it really is a time of preparation. It's kind of like Jesus for a time, you know, took his disciples away from their callings in life, and then ultimately would send them out to the ends of the earth in, in his mission. Um, but for a time, they just spent time with the Lord, learning with the Lord. And oftentimes he would even call them apart and say, just spend this focused time, you know, with me. And so come to seminary with the intention to really invest yourself 
fully in this time. There will never be another season in life where you'll be able to set all. And even during seminary, we can't set all other things aside, nor should we. Uh, but it's a focused time of study. And so come to seminary with with gratitude in your heart to God for this season in life to really soak in the learning of uh, uh, divine truth, uh, um, divine history, and and divine skills, and uh, and uh, and prepare yourself then for for the many many years of of uh, of very busy involvement uh, of ministry that'll come on the heels of it. That's some excellent advice, and um, I, I want to ask maybe as a, a final or concluding question, I think we could talk for a, a long time. I had uh, lots of other questions, and we'll certainly have you again on the podcast to uh, follow up on some things, but I thought maybe we'd close with just a few uh, thoughts of what do you love about Concordia Seminary? Um, and especially uh, what would make some of those things that you love about Concordia Seminary reasons for prospective students to say, yeah, maybe I should maybe I should check out uh, Concordia Seminary and everything that's going on there uh, as a, a place to, to possibly train for a future in, in the church. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I'm. I'm probably biased towards the classrooms because that's where I've spent uh, so much of the last 16 years. But there are there are many wonderful things we can talk about about the life of the seminary. I could start with the external things and talk about what an unbelievably beautiful campus this is to walk onto every day. And and for those of us, uh, all three of us now, uh, all three of us live on campus, and uh, and that has its ups and downs, but. But being Mostly surrounded ups. by beauty is definitely one of the ups. Yeah. And uh, and so just the beauty of the place, the community and post-COVID, we cannot wait uh, here at the seminary. We all are so thirsting for a restoration of community. And uh, in the faculty neighborhood where we all live, we've really begun to enjoy that uh, a lot more uh, already and look forward to even more sort of free and full just time together. Uh, what a gift to be able to spend life together with people who share so fully and deeply a commitment to the most important things in life and share an, just an approach to life uh, and, and a genuine love and care for one another that grows out of the love of Christ. So a, a loving Christian community, I could talk about that. Um, but But let me start with the classrooms and say that uh, to be able to enter into the classrooms at our seminary with men who, um, none of whom are here because because they're just intellectually curious people who like to think deep thoughts. Um, But we have a very gifted, amazingly bright and deep thinking faculty, all of whom, Every single one of them is motivated uh, to to work here and to go about their daily tasks in service to the church for the sake of the gospel and the mission of the church. And our faculty work hard. Uh, They really invest themselves in this work. No one is just punching the clock and uh, and, you know, calling it a day as quickly as they can. they they work hard in their own study and preparation, but they also in the classroom uh, connect the learning that's done here, faithful, scriptural, Lutheran, historical, uh, practical learning. Uh, they connect it with the life of the ministry of the church. Um, that's why they're here, and that's what they value. And uh, and yet, it's not—it's not a superficial—it's not a superficial, um, not a superficial education uh, and preparation that students will get here. You will—you uh, will come to seminary, and at first, you will uh, be kind of amazed by all there is to know, <laughs> and kind of humbled and a little bit intimidated by all there is to learn. Then you'll start to think, "Man, I'm learning a lot." I've learned a lot. 
And then by the time you leave, you'll kind of be back to, oh man, I learned a lot, but I raised more questions than I ever uh, answered along the way. And you'll realize how much there always is uh, left to learn and and hopefully learn with, uh, leave here led by the faculty with a really clear sense that um, what we've learned is, uh, we've learned a lot of very certain things that we can stand firmly on for a lifetime of ministry, but also with the humility that we're human beings and life is messy and uh, and God is a lot bigger than than our thoughts and our categories. And uh, and so to leave with a certain uh, theological humility and just personal humility as well, uh, I think it's I think our, our seminary get in, instills a good mix of those things in people, a theological humility, but also a solid preparation. Well, President Egger, I want to thank you so much for giving us your time today to to not just talk about your time, your well, your now short time as our president, but also to to dive into the 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 deep parts of of past ministry experience to to share your thoughts with us on uh with us for future seminarians and maybe future deaconess students uh, to help prepare people for the future next generation of the church. Uh, and dear listeners, it, it's, you know, with a little twinge in my heart, I, I want to keep going on with this closing because uh, like you, hopefully, uh, I don't want, quite want not only this episode to end, but also this season to end. Uh, but don't forget, heart, don't forget to leave off in mid-sentence. Yeah, that's you. right. <laughs> uh, take heart. Uh, ben and I will, will be back and I'm sure we'll have uh, President Egger back on another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Uh, in the meantime, me and uh, Ben, we're going to get back to the drawing board. We're going to be thinking about uh, what we want to talk about in the next season of Under the Fig Tree. If you have uh, thoughts and uh, criticisms, email Ben. You can <laughs> you can find his email at csl.eu somewhere. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but nonetheless. Uh, it's been it's been exciting. We we talk a lot about continuing education, and I think Ben and I would agree that we've learned a lot uh, in this time of getting together, sitting down, talking theology, having people come on and discuss it with us. And and we're, we're our hearts are are really in it for you. Uh, that if you're in a space, and and again, maybe there's been somebody has told you, or maybe in the back parts of your mind, you've been thinking, I wonder what a uh, a life in, in church work would be like. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're here, uh, but also don't let under the fig tree be the end. Talk to your pastor, talk to other people that know and care about you, and then reach out to us here at CSL. Uh, we'd love to have you on campus. Uh, all of us have been through the process of discerning ministry. Uh, many of us don't come from uh, pastoral families. Many of us uh, were knuckleheaded young men. I am one of those. Uh, and, and we all come from different walks of life. And yet God has still called us into this ministry. And it's through his authority, through his power uh, that we do everything that we do. Uh, once again, uh, on behalf of me as the director of recruitment here at Seminary, I want to thank you again for joining us thus far under the fig tree. Ben? Yeah, we're uh, grateful to uh, to be on. That would have been a good place to end, right? Right where you said <laughs> Ben, ben and, and I just didn't say anything. <laughs> no, listeners, it's it's so good to be with you, and we've already heard from some of you. We'd love to hear from you. So, uh, in all seriousness, shoot uh, me or Micah an email and uh, or a, a interact with us on social media uh, through Concordia Seminary social media accounts. And let us know that you're listening. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear what you'd like to to hear more about in the the second season. So with that, uh, God bless, and we'll see you in another season. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus shows his followers how to care for his people. Oftentimes, this includes sharing the word in intimate moments of personal conversation like the Samaritan woman at the well. At other times, it's sharing the word with crowds like the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes it's just being there for people when they are experiencing the worst moments of life 
like when Jesus was there for Jairus when his daughter died. It's gathering his disciples around a table of bread and wine to hear, this is my body, this is my blood. Whether it's as a deaconess sharing the word with the sick, or as a pastor preaching the word and administering the sacraments, being there for people at these intimate moments in life is something that Jesus is calling many more people to do. In Under the Fig Tree, we want to bring you into these moments with us, and maybe you begin to see yourself in one of these roles or feel yourself being called into service of the church. If you want to find out more about what it means to be a pastor or deaconess, visit us at csl.edu. And of course, keep listening to Under the Fig Tree.